you just keep your hands off And stand tall Like This is hell. Live from the United States and the nightmare of want, this is hell. When we think of slavery and colonialism, we likely think of these cruel and brutal institutions as things of the past in our rearview mirror, horrors that humanity has moved beyond and are now relics of a history that we must confront. But what if neither colonialism nor slavery ever ended, and not in the lingering legacy kind of way, but their actual processes continuing? What if slavery and colonialism have an afterlife, like a zombie that just continues to thrive? As our guest today cites the writer and African-American studies scholar Sadia Hartman, Black lives are still imperiled and devalued by a racial calculus and a political arithmetic that were entrenched centuries ago. This is the afterlife of slavery, skewed life chances, limited access to health and education, premature death, incarceration, and impoverishment. What if the same can be said to this day when it comes to colonialism, that all of its exploitation and imposition of race and gender still very much exists? And how does austerity and debt reflect that coloniality. We will consider how colonialism still thrives as coloniality and the potential for decoloniality in a few minutes when we speak with Rocio Zambrana, author of Colonial Debts, The Case of Puerto Rico. Rocio is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Emory University and also the author of Hegel's Theory, uh, Theory of Intelligibility, which was published in 2015. Rocio is also co-editor of Hypatia, a journal of feminist philosophy, which you can find at hypatiaphilosophy.org. Rocio is also a columnist for 80 Grottos, which you can find at 80grottos.net and on Twitter at 80grottos. Follow Rocio on Twitter at Zambrana Rocio. Also on today's show, we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll share with you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we'll tell you what's happening on This Is Hell next week. And of course, we'll have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how's your week gone so far? Oh boy, uh, watching a used N95 mask floating on a wave. Vape smoke billowing from a hammock near you. That uh, first hit of hot dumpster stink. It's a uh, summertime in Chicago, baby. Guess what I found in our uh, basement? A used N95 mask or a vape? A you an old N95 mask in the bottom of a box that was moldy and had been left there like 12 years ago. It's something that could have come in handy around March of last year. Uh, judging by what happened when you opened that box, maybe it's a good thing you didn't open it a year ago. <laughs> 
Alex, I have another story about Mel, the kind of feral cat for you. A week ago was the first day pool leagues returned to bars across the city, so there were a couple teams playing downstairs, all dudes. One of the bartenders that Mel absolutely adores, Donna, was tending bar. Mel is head over heels for Donna and will stay by her side on her side of the bar throughout her shift. Mel loves Donna, and last Thursday, Mel showed how much in the middle of a pool match where there's all these manly men playing pool, they all started shrieking like children, jumping up on bar stools when it was act- they, when they were acting like they thought they saw a ghost. It was the craziest thing I'd ever seen, fleeing, or Don had ever seen, fleeing the area around the table. And there he was, Mel was running into the bar to show his true feelings for Donna with a very big and fat, still very much alive rat in his mouth, heading right to Donna to give her his prize, his gift to her. Everybody started yelling, no, Mel, no. And he took his quarry with him for what likely ended up being a delicious meal. But absolutely fantastic seeing Mel bringing a live rat into the bar. Damn, me and my kid just got our peonies for her birthday. (laughs) Mel's one up on us there, too. (laughs) See? More importantly than any of that, Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what corporate partner is a natural sponsorship fit for This Is Hell's passionate, engaged audience? (laughs) (sighs) This one kind of was a dud. I was going to do better than this one. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Alan at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. It's so late in the week. Just email it to alex at alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer in by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff publicly shames himself. Alex, I have more of your answers to this week's question mail following our guest. Again, this week's question is, what corporate partner is a natural sponsorship fit for This Is Hell's passionate, engaged audience? We got an email immediately following yesterday's show from yesterday's guest, literary theorist Hans Ulrich Gumbrecht, author of Crowds, The Stadium as a Ritual of Intensity. Hans writes, please, dear Alex, tell Chuck that among the many interviews that I'm doing, this has been one of my favorites ever. A well-prepared host with precise questions and passion. Marvelous, and I am so looking forward to the podcast Hans. Not too sure if Hans was remembering the interview correctly, but thanks, Hans. And while his book is all about crowds in his book, Hans also finds a beauty in stadiums that are completely empty. Not as in what were called ghost stadiums, like those in German soccer where matches were being played in front of empty stands due to the pandemic. But Hans writes about sitting in completely empty stadiums when no match is being played, even being locked in the famous home of Argentina's Boca's Juniors overnight, spending 10 hours reflecting on what has taken place on the field and in the stands. It's kind of eerie, also kind of cool. We also got another email from Chris B. You may remember Chris writing to ask if the name of our show, This Is Hell, is figurative or literal. In fact, I think I did an entire monologue on Patreon on the topic. 
We also found out that Chris is the director of the 2019 documentary, The Illumination of Jim Woodring, which is described as drawing from childhood hallucinations and haunting visions. Cartoonist Jim Woodring challenges mundane perception through his nightmarish cartoon wonderland of terrifying beauty. This time, Chris writes to say, Hey, I have a garage full of a book that I illustrated and published a few years ago called E is for Erotica, which you can find at eisforerotica.com. Chris continues, I also have DVDs suitable as table coasters of my old documentary, Comic Book Independence, where 24 different types of creators discuss the secrets of the artistic mind by talking about comic books. If either or both are of interest to you, Chris writes that he would be happy to send a few boxes at his expense for us to offer for free giveaways at the anniversary party. Chris writes, I'm getting out of the publishing storage business and think at least the former would be, that is the E is for erotica book, would be something a few of your attendees may enjoy. The book comes in, er, the books come in boxes of 35. I'd be happy to send as many as three boxes your way. So here is how E is for erotica is described at the website, E is for erotica.com. Learn your ABCs all over again with this hilarious body Shel Silverstein-inspired Dr. Seuss for adults with 43 pages of ribald verse and titillating cartoon art. Humorous poetry and funny pictures guide you through the bizarre and sometimes dark corridors of human sexual fetishes. Your preconceptions will be challenged. Your morality will be accosted. One thing is certain. After reading this book with every new person you meet, you will wonder... Are they into P, Q, R, S, or T? Which means, yes, definitely yes, Chris. Please send us as many copies of E is for Erotica as you can to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And uh, if we actually do have our 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show, We will definitely give away copies as raffle prizes and send some DVDs, too. You'd be surprised how many of our listeners are avid comic book fans, or not. It's really not all that surprising. As far as if we are having the party and when that will be, tune into our conversation next Wednesday when we will get an update on the pandemic from Rob Wallace, who so far has been right about the virus this entire time. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. Don't forget, you can direct message us as well at uh, Twitter at thisishellradio, and you can message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can just send us stuff in the actual mail to This Is Hell 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Coming up, the persistence of coloniality on Puerto Rico. We'll also tell you what's happening on Patreon during our Friday Patreon podcast this week. And we'll have Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment. Again, Jeff publicly shames himself. Alex, I have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, that question is, what corporate, spon- what corporate partner is a natural sp- sponsorship fit for This Is Hell's passionate, engaged audience? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail on Facebook and tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we got to have your answer by the end of today's show. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. 
Puerto Rico is said to be a commonwealth. And by definition in the United States, there is no difference between a state and a commonwealth. The difference is in name only. However, Puerto Ricans have no representation in Congress and cannot vote for a president. So that commonwealth label is not only misleading, it's wrong. So not as much a commonwealth. Puerto Rico is more a territory under the sovereignty of the United States government and not part of the states. But far more accurately, Puerto Rico can be seen, as our guest will explain, as a site of ongoing coloniality. Here to help us have a better understanding of Puerto Rico and its relationship with the United States and to introduce us to decoloniality, Rocio Zambrana is author of Colonial Debts, The Case of Puerto Rico. Welcome to This Is Hell, Rocio. Hi, Chuck. Thank you so much for having me. This is a fascinating book, and I think it's really important to have this kind of discussion about Puerto Rico because the kinds of discussions that we hear just kind of avoids all of the impact the United States directly has on Puerto Rico. You write that in July 2019, two weeks of protest ousted Governor Ricardo Ricky Rosseo. On July 12th, the Center for Investigative Reporting released 889 pages of a telegram thread in which Rosseo interacted with his closest advisors. The publication of the messages came days after the FBI arrested top government officials, including the Secretary of Education, charged with mishandling $15.5 million during a two-year tenure in which 438 schools were closed. Not all 11 men, Rosseo affectionately called brothers on his Telegram chat, were government officials. The brothers discussed public policy and corporate interests, as well as public perception in the media and social, in the regular media and social media. They traded misogynist, homophobic, transphobic, racist, classist, jokes, expletives, and memes. They discussed suppressing information regarding hurricane relief and recovery. They made light of the deaths of Hurricane Maria. The chat revealed overall apathy for ordinary Puerto Ricans navigating economic downturn and steep austerity measures for over a decade. Is there a connection between austerity measures, austerity politics, and apathy toward the public? Because proponents of austerity might argue they're doing this because they care so much for the public, and it's merely the tough love that is necessary to fix the budget and the economy. So in your opinion, is there a connection between austerity and apathy? Uh, yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I think that the what I explore in my book um, is, is uh, really that austerity is the other side of the coin of debt, um, especially in the case of Puerto Rico. Um, but it's it's part of, you know, a whole kind of, uh, uh, you know, neoliberal, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of a history of neoliberalism and how it how it lands to use um, Veronica Gago and Lucy Caballero's term in term in Puerto Rico. Um, so so austerity certainly certainly is. Uh, is part of a whole kind of approach um, that I discuss uh, that that you know guides a, a neoliberal neoliberal um, kind of political economy, which in the case of Puerto Rico is a colonial political economy and continues and intensifies a whole trend um, that predates um, neoliberalism. Um, but austerity, in fact, you know, can be seen as, as I discuss in the book, as as precisely not not the tough love that that helps you know um, balance budgets, and um, but rather as as a form of kind of inverted um, uh, redistribution of wealth, um, so that 
you know, the, the, the set of claims about how um, that, that we, we've since the 90s been very familiar with about, you know, c- capitalism being precisely kind of um, the seat of power in the contemporary world, well, it, it nevertheless requires states for its actualization or for its realization, um, for its actual, right, you know, functioning. So, so what happens with austerity and precisely as a result of um, also in the context of a debt crisis is, is, is a form of kind of a redistribution of wealth that intensifies this idea um, right, that um, um, you know, um, you know, cutting back, um, you know, sh- shrinking government, um, cutting back any type of wel- welfare state measures, um, and um, precisely kind of um, uh, cutting back on all what 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 have or have not been named essential services, um, you know, will will permit, you know, um, um, the generation of of more business um, through through right that this is coupled also with tax exemption and you know um, you know deregulation of certain you know financial sectors you know uh, so on um, and precisely precisely uh, it functions as a inverse you know, redistribution of wealth because um, kind of the impacts of austerity and things like regressive taxation, in fact, you know, land on populations, especially marginalized and already vulnerableized uh, populations, especially in Puerto Rico, um, while, you know, allowing and providing the material conditions um, for, for a dignified life and for, you know, greater wealth and greater profit to corporations, individuals, and the like. So austerity, in fact, doesn't balance budgets, but rather puts the burden um, of the cost of social reproduction on already vulnerable populations while it you know, generates economic possibilities for the wealthy, for creditors, um, and for corporations. So how, so how how effective is it then in actually lowering debt? I mean, that's the that's the thing I don't really understand about austerity politics and austerity policies. When they are implemented, they don't seem to work. They don't seem to lower debt. They often cause more debt. So I don't understand why they're still pursued if they're completely, they, at least they seem to be ineffective. Have they been completely ineffective when it comes to addressing Puerto Rico's debt? They have been ineffective. And in fact, you know, they have, um, uh, you know, continued um, kind of the other the other part of 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 this, you know, debt austerity as two sides of the same coin is is is, again, kind of the 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 material conditions and the economic possibilities that are provided and generated for um, for creditors you know, the wealthy um, corporations and so on, while, um, you know, populations and especially, you know, um, um, you know, the working class, the poor, and even the middle class in Puerto Rico, um, you know, navigate austerity measures. They, you know, one of the kind of the, the, the really significant impacts is that, you know, and, and, you know, I talk about this quite a bit in my book because, um, um, you know, Puerto Rico's col- colonial political economy um, within the framework of U.S. colonialism has always been based on tax exemption. Um, 
know, foreign investment through tax exemption. Um, so, so, so austerity politics, for example, you quoted um, the, 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 the closing of schools and the like, um, you know, they, they dismantle communities and they, 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 they function as a form of also expulsion and migratory patterns um, that, you know, you know, have have continued throughout the 20th century and in an intensified form in the past years and especially after the, the aftermath of, in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Um, but um, so so they don't actually, you know, help balance budgets. Um, they, they, I think that it has to do with this justification, right, for this type of redistribution of wealth, where certain priorities are set for budgets. Um, so, so the, the debt crisis and debt has has functioned as prioritizing, right, the the, the payment of the debt. Um, rather than, you know, the offering, the buttressing, or the even reformulation of, you know, essential services for Puerto Rico's population. Um, so, so, so it's it's again the this two sides of the same coin, whereby what we see is that debt is actually functioning within this kind of financialized neoliberal capitalism in a post financial crisis context, where debt, you know, f- functions as a form of, you know, capture as a form of predation and as a form of, you know, intensifying already, um, you know, a a set of hierarchies that, you know, intensify race, gender, class, the way that racial, gender, and class hierarchies are, you know, the, you know, ongoing operation of, um, uh, you know, the the modern colonial world. Um, So, 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 yeah, they, they, it, it, again, it has to do with this redistribution of wealth um, that 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 is not really um, um, you know effective necessarily um, in 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 um, you know the the, the 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 easing of the debt or the debt restructuring. Although that is, of course, kind of the the legitimation around it. So, does the financialization of debt? Does it weaponize debt against the poor in a form of coloniality? Is it is it a type of government policy that is a, an occupation of its own domestic population? Well, you know, in the in the case of Puerto Rico, and, and this is kind of the main the main you know, uh, kind of thesis of the book and that what I really wanted to explore um, is that um, in the case of Puerto Rico, you know, we we might make a distinction between colonialism and coloniality. And coloniality, you know, this this language comes from this Peruvian sociologist Aníbal Quijano, and you know, picked up and reformulated most powerfully by, you know, some some decolonial feminist. Um, um, uh, who who really kind of expand on 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 this notion of coloniality, but you know, so colonialism as just this you know straight straightforward form you know in a, in the most minimal sense, the most straightforward form of um, you know juridical political subordination and control. Um, 
you know, and this is, this is, you know, exemplified in the case of Puerto Rico through the, 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 the fact that Puerto Rico, despite the fact of having written up its constitution, thanks to, um, you know, law 600, um, uh, uh, the U S Senate, um, uh, in the, in, in the mid 20th century, um, despite having its own constitution and so forth, it left its, its territorial status intact. So Puerto Rico is an unincorporated territory of the United States. And therefore, any final decision about any self-determination of Puerto Rico lies in the hands of Congress. Um, so the seat of sovereignty of Puerto Rico um, is, is in the U.S. Congress, despite the fact of its own constitutions and so on. Um, and so, so that is kind of your, you know, your clear-cut way in which Puerto Rico is and remains a colony of the United States. But the notion of coloniality actually gives us something more. You know, it, it, it talks, you know, it talks about, you know, the, 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 the kind of racial order that was instituted, you know, through the, you know, through the formation and development and mutations of the modern colonial world since, you know, the 15th century. So that racial order in supposedly post-colonial context. So when Quijano talks about coloniality of power, he's thinking about independence in the, you know, uh, uh, South American or Latin American context that, you know, recentered, you know, um, you know, uh, a whole class of Creole elites or Criollo elites. Um, and that, you know, replicated this racial hierarchy where, you know, indigenous and black populations were, you know, marginalized, exploited, and, and um, you know, uh, 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 you know, still held in, you know, diff different modalities of racial violence and exploitation. Um, you know, what is what is interesting to use that language in the case of Puerto Rico is because we're not operating in a post-colonial context. We're actually operating in the colonial context. Um, so so in the case of Puerto Rico, you know, what I what I what I argue in the book is that, you know, despite the fact that, of course, we have a like a, a genuine process of decolonization, you know, still to to be you know, done, um, we also, you know, have to center the fact that that type of racial order, you know, is ongoingly updated and actualized or, you know, re-articulated given altered material and historical conditions. And so concretely, you know, the debt crisis in Puerto Rico is this one kind of access this one point by which that, you know, that both the colonial condition, the just straight up, you know, colonial control um, um, is, is re-articulated, but also, you know, the way that coloniality operates, that whole race and therefore also gender and class hierarchy in Puerto Rico is also updated or replenished through the work of um, uh, debt. So the debt crisis actually, you know, rearticulates the colonial condition through, for example, PROMESA, that 2016 federal law that instituted a fiscal control board in Puerto Rico. Now, this is a, a U.S. appointed board, but, you know, Puerto Rico doesn't, you know, 
vote for the president, doesn't have representation in Congress. So it, it institutes this financial, this board to, to undergo, you know, um, debt restructuring, but, but, you know, without, without the, the proper kind of democratic representation. Um, um, so, so it kind of reverts us back to kind of this pre-Estado Libre Asociado, pre-1952, you know, um, colonial relation where, where, you know, the U.S. appoints, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of government officials to, to, you know, um, to take care of Puerto Rico's business. Um, you know, but, but interestingly and more importantly, perhaps not more importantly, but what cannot be forgotten is that the debt, you know, the debt because of the relationship between debt and austerity, debt and expulsion, precarity, um, and different modes of violence that are intensified by debt, like gender violence, um, racial violence, um, debt also kind of intensifies and rearticulates or replenishes, adapts that, you know, racial, um, racial and class and gender order in within the U.S. Uh, so, sorry, in within Puerto Rico itself. Um, so, so, so debt here functions as you know an apparatus of capture, predation, and extraction, like Marito Lazzarato argues, looking at other cases of debt, uh, debt crises. Um, um, but I also, but what I argue is that it also functions as a form of coloniality, whereby in the case of Puerto Rico, it adapts and replenishes and rearticulates both the colonial condition, but more importantly, the way in which race, gender, class operates in Puerto Rico. Um, so, 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 so debt here, you know, this financialized capitalism functions very concretely in these ways, in the ways in which, um, um, you know, uh, not all populations, certain populations are suffering um, uh, in, in a more intensified way, the, the, the effects of the debt crisis. So is coloniality more pernicious, more subtle than colonialism, but no less brutal, if not more so, because it is less visible? Um, I think it is. So, so they're, they, they're hand in hand because I mean, coloniality is, you know, I, 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 um, I read Sidia Hartman um, uh, and, you know, use the, the language of the afterlife. Um, I want to say that, you know, coloniality is the afterlife of the colony in the sense that it includes, right, these processes um, of colonialism um, and up updates them. But, but what that means is that, you know, the, the colony is alive and well through its racial order and through its ways, through the ways in which, um, you know, um, it, it, it continues a pattern of, um, of, um, uh, of exploitation and expulsion and dispossession that um, impacts certain populations more than others. And it also replenishes or rearticulates the racial norm, the ways in which, um, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a whole, a whole linking 
of, um, you know, kind of a work ethic, um, the normative family, so on and so forth, is linked to kind of this 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 view of bourgeois whiteness, um, and um, through again processes that continue the legacy of slavery and indentured servitude in Puerto Rico, um, um, and uh, and you know in in in, in the past past uh, you know. 20, 30 years more, um, you know, the legacy of also these intensified policing, you know, gated communities vis-a-vis -vis public housing that articulates and binds, um, you know, uh, uh, this, this idea of criminality, um, dangerousness um, um, to blackness or non-whiteness. And so, so, so yes, coloniality is, 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 where the colony is. So that's in a way what I'm trying to argue in the book that, you know, we could go through processes of decolonization in the juridical political sense, but that won't necessarily take care of or dismantle the ways in which race, gender, class operates. Um, and this racial order operates, this forms of racial and gender violence operates. Um, so, so, so it is, ubiquitous, pervasive, um, and internal to the colonial condition, but exceeds it. And therefore we're not necessarily going to eradicate it through, you know, independence or statehood. Um, so, so, so yeah, so, so, so I, I wouldn't say that one is more pernicious than the other, but, but certainly, um, would say that, um, that because of the ubiquity and the, uh, concrete effects on the lives of people. Um, uh, uh, the, the notion of coloniality just is more precise to, to think about how, how the colonial condition really operates and how it lands on, on populations and how it articulates the racial norm, the gender norm. Um, and, um, but, you know, I, I think that also, I think that the, the political conversation and political activism in Puerto Rico has also, you know, shifted, um, you know, very much so to, to, to really centering questions of anti-racism, anti-Black violence, um, um, uh, you know, uh, dismantling anti-Black violence. Black violence, uh, gender violence, transphobia, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, anti-capitalism um, in a way that is, you know, in obviously always in conversation and in relation to the colonial condition, but also in ways that, you know, thinks through how these operate um, um, and in a way that doesn't allow them to be subsumed merely to the question of status. Let's talk about those concrete effects on the Puerto Rican people for a moment, because you make this one point that I just find fascinating. And I think it's something that people do not consist, consider or are completely unaware. What do you mean by colonialism being a metaphysical catastrophe? Yeah. So there I'm quoting um, uh, Puerto Rican uh, philosopher and decolonial thinker, um, Nelson Maldonado Torres. Um, and so, you know, so... Um, so what, it, what I mean is that, you know, colonialism is a historical material fact. Um, um, you know, 
the 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 modern colonial world that we live in is the product of you know the transatlantic slave trade racial slavery the plantation indigenous genocide conquest um settler colonialism and that is a historical fact but when i what you know i think that when when Maldonado torres and 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 what the way that i you know kind of elaborate his concept is that, you know, it also posits a whole, um, you know, coordinates of sense of intelligibility for the modern colonial world. You know, and what I mean by that is that, you know, these are historical facts, but they also posit kind of what is possible. You know, what is imagined as possible, what is desired, what is perceived, um, you know, so it, it actually articulates a world, but it's it's a world that is a non-relational world because it's based on racial violence. And therefore it's also based on gender violence and class violence. Um, but, but it's metaphysical in the sense that, you know, that it cannot be reduced to the fact of history but it actually has a continuing force. So it continues to shape the way that we imagine how things ought to be, not just how things are. Um, it continues to shape how we perceive in, individually and collectively. It continues to shape what we desire um, and the types of pleasures that we, you know, um, you know, participate in. So, so it's, so, so, so it's a metaphysical fact in the fact that it, it produces reality itself. And that's the big challenge of any decolonial or, you know, effort, um, you know, that it has to not merely change laws or, you know, change a juridical political status, but it actually has to dismantle those modes of perceiving and desiring and sensing itself. The ways in which our, even our political imagination is captured by this kind of modern colonial world that you know is structured around private property, the heteronormative family, um, you know, so on. It's, it, the, the ideas of nature that have to do with something to, that is something to exploit, or even even ways in which we consider, you know, ecological views um, that still you know have have um, dire impacts, like political and 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 otherwise in in other parts of the world. So 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 that's what I mean by it's a, you know it's it's a metaphysical kind of catastrophe because it's an it's a world that is a non-world. It's a non-relation because it's based on racial violence that happened you know centuries ago but that continue in reshaped ways in new modalities um, in updated different ways today but they're still the same way. You know, they still they still um, manage to recenter of a very specific racial order, a very specific way of of imagining life. And when you talk about decoloniality, one of the things that I was uh, thinking about as far as it comes to debt and how you can address debt. Uh, how difficult is it to refuse to participate in debt when you live within a system of debt that is imposed upon you and it is expected for you to participate within that? It, is it enough just to say, I prefer not to? Yeah, I, I think, you know, one of the things that I that I do in the book um, is is track 
kind of the the various ways in which what you know kind of what I what I call decolonial praxis in in the territory around the debt crisis um, and around and around promesa. And what is interesting to me is you know there, there's a there's a lot of different approaches to debt um, um, that have to do with cancellation, forgiveness, annulment, jubilee. Um, there's a lot of really interesting tactics to think about strike debt and what, you know, what the offshoots of Occupy Wall Street. You know, a, a lot of interesting tactics that have to do with non-payment, cancellation, forgiveness, so on and so forth. But what has been interesting to, to, to see and to participate in um, in Puerto Rico is how activists in Puerto Rico have really, um, you know, um, kind of actually taken a, a, a you know, a, 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 I would say a different tactic, which is to inhabit the strictures of debt in order to subvert it. Um, so, so rather than, you know, rather than merely kind of betting on debt cancellation or debt refusal, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, the activists, um, and the, the collectives like La Colectiva Feminista en Construcción, Jornada, uh, Se Acabaron Las Promesas, um, and others in, in the territory is to, to flip, flip on its head, this idea that the type of relations of power, the positions of power that debt generates, the creditor and the debtor. And to really kind of flip on its head and say, no, actually you owe us. And it is time, there's a reckoning to be made um, precisely um, through um, uh, kind of making explicit exactly everything that you owe us rather than we being the culpable, indebted colonial subjects, um, kind of this failed colony. In fact, we are the creditors um, because of the history of exploitation, um, because of the history of colonialism, um, and and the, the way in which it continues to operate, um, and that happens at a small scale and a bigger scale, um, and it can it, it also has you know the this this references to um, you know uh, other sites in 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 um, uh, in the Caribbean where you know that that very inversion of debt has been an important site for. You know what, what I what I explore in, in the book, the important side of moving from financial debts to historical debts, and to really using the financial, you know, financial crisis um, to to make explicit and reckon with, um, you know, this the, the the historical debt that is colonialism, historical in the sense of how the financial debt has come to be as a result of a colonial political economy, but also how it is a continuation of the, the, the very way that co the colony operates. And again, the colony here in the sense of coloniality, in the sense of you know, um, dispossession, expulsion, expropriation. And I, I found that whole uh, aspect of the audits and the idea of historical debt and financial debt, I found that just fascinating. Are, are reparations decolonialism or do they fall short because it is not the forgiveness of debt as much as it is a payment to cover historic debt? So are, are reparations decolonialism? 
Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the idea of reparations and the whole politics of reparations are fascinating um, because I do think, um, you know, they're, they're powerful, they're very powerful kind of um, uh, approach and a, a powerful, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, way of, of, of organizing or making or staking a claim. But what I do, what I do, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm careful in the book to, to kind of provide this kind of decolonial reading of, of reparations itself, because, um, you know, again, reparations cannot end up with just, you know, kind of a, a form of, you know, settling accounts through the writing of a check um, or through, you know, monetary restitution or, you know, um, um, you know, pedagogical, artistic, um, you know, historical, um, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, interventions. I think those are all absolutely necessary. I think that material restitution is required, but, um, but, but what I'm careful is to, and I do this through reading, uh, reading Franz Fanon and, and others. Um, I, I, I'm careful because, um, you know, thinking here of Fred Moen and, and Stefan Harney's work, um, you know, any any kind of debt cancellation or restitution or reparations that, you know, merely is an access to credit retain like is still within the very structure and the very loop of how debt operates. Um, so so in the case of Puerto Rico, so you know, promesa and, and uh, debt restructuring is for the sake of accessing capital markets, of restoring financial health. Um, and so there's a version of that with, you know, uh, reparations that kind of, you know, um, you know, kind of exculpates or annuls the, the, the debt of, of, of um, the debt of the creditor. <laughs> not the debt of the debtor. Um, but, but, you know, there, there's also, you know, and here thinking of Denise Ferreira da Silva's work, you know, part of what colonialism and coloniality, um, or even I would say coloniality really kind of marks or indexes is that certain debts are unpayable. There, there's no way to, to, to really give back or to restore what has been taken. So, so there's a way in which reparations are necessary, but there's a recognition that I would wanna hold on to, and I think a lot of activists in the territory hold on to that, yes, pay us back, but you know, that is not gonna you know, be um, for the sake of you know, reestablishing the order of things for the sake of reestablishing entry into financial markets or having, um, you know, financial um, health, um, because those the, the very system is precisely what generates um, debt as a necessity and that will bring us back to the same situation. And and anyways, the, the coloniality and capitalism, they, they function hand in hand. There is, 
You know, this is not, these are not kind of separate, separate systems that intersect, but rather, you know, capitalism requires a racial order through which it operates. And so reparations must be done, but not for the sake of reestablishing health on the terms of this world, of the world of capitalism and, you know, of, of, uh, that requires this racial order, but for the sake of dismantling that very world (laughs) that is, that is, um, that is, uh, uh, that is anyways going to lead us to another debt crisis and to another, to continuing forms of racial dispossession and violence. And you're right that Puerto Rico is not a mere example. Neither is the specificity of Puerto Rico's current predicament universalizable. Although this is not to say that Puerto Rico is marked by singularity. If it is not universalizable, if Puerto Rico is not an example, what can those studying other sites of coloniality learn from your study of Puerto Rico? Yeah. So, yeah, what what I don't, you know, what I mean there is, and this is in the introduction, I'm trying to kind of clarify, you know, because of, I got a lot of questions about why call it the case of Puerto Rico and what was case doing there? Was this an example? Was this kind of a positivistic like enterprise where I was like, you know, exploring like a lot of philosophers do and I don't want to do, <laughs> which is like have a concept and explore it, you know, how it functions in the world. No, I actually tried to think about what concepts, you know, like what was already being produced intellectually and politically in Puerto Rico um, through, you know, um, like, for example, La Colectiva Feminista en Construcciones, um, you know, um, own own actions and own like intellectual production through their own political organizing and mobilizing. Um, so, so I, you know, what I want to avoid is this kind of, this kind of idea that Puerto Rico, because of its, you know, predicament is somehow singular and it's not, you know, it doesn't, you know, speak to other sites or that it's universalizable whereby, you know, debt operates in the same way everywhere. Um, what I, what I wanted to do is to really track how it's operating in Puerto Rico to the best of my ability today, um, in order to track different histories and to within Puerto Rico and beyond Puerto Rico. So the book is an invitation to think about how debt is operating in Puerto Rico and cross-reference it to other sites. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I don't have a lot of space in the book to do this, but I do kind of mention Haiti and uh, explore it a little bit um, uh, as a as kind of the example to or the case to to think of when we're thinking about debt in the Caribbean as as the continuation of the colonial condition. Um, through the independence debt in Haiti um, as a result of the, you know, success, the one successful slave revolt in history um, and the establishment of the Haitian Republic in the, in 1804, um, the independence debt that like was paid until the 20th century and uh, that, that a debt that was levied uh, by France and its allies as uh, in exchange for um, diplomatic recognition of the, of the, of this Republic. Um, So, 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 so anyway, so 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 the, it, the book is an invitation to to track how debt is operating in different sites, um, you know, whether that be in Latin America or, you know, when in 2016, 2017, you know, there was a lot of thinking about the relationship between Greece and Puerto Rico. 
Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, really interesting um, conversations happening between, you know, folks in Puerto Rico and um, Argentina. There is a lot of also conversations happening in, between folks in Puerto Rico and Detroit. Um, so, so it's an invitation to track our own histories and think about convergences and divergences. One last question for you, Rocio. We've been speaking with Rocio Zambrana, author of Colonial Debts, The Case of Puerto Rico. You can follow Rocio on Twitter at Zambrana Rocio. One last question for you, Rocio. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. How much is decoloniality an existential threat to the U.S. economy, if not the United States itself? How much is it an existential threat? Um, I think that that is measured by um, the the ways in which kind of the apparatuses of repression are unleashed on, uh, you know, folks, you know, taking the streets and protesting and um, really, you know, having also a, a variety of forms of thinking about um, how to how to subvert the positions of power that are oppressing them, um, and so, um, you know, I I would <laughs> I would hope that you know enough um, that that you know there is enough of a challenge. Um, it is is launched so that um, so that one can kind of move away from kind of these common common sense um, you know ideas. For example, Puerto Rico as a commonwealth, as you started, and really think hard about you know the the history and the 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 the, the political present, such that you know such that folks um, you know are are inspired to 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 do something not just in terms of their own political organizing, but to really think hard about their own desires um, and their own kind of the ways in which we live and imagine politically. So I think that also like challenging the political imagination um, is, 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 is a, is a great gain already. And we've seen that throughout 2019 protests in Puerto Rico and so many other places in Latin America, also 20, you know, 2020 uh, Black Lives Matter uh, protests in the U.S. Um, and um, and just, you know, general general upheaval and, and throughout the entire world and general upheaval against, um, you know, capitalism, coloniality, the racial order that they represent. Rocio, this is a fascinating book. Rocio Zambrana has been our guest today. She is author of Colonial Debts, The Case of Puerto Rico. Follow Rocio on Twitter at Zambrana Rocio. Thank you so much for being on our show. Absolutely fascinating book. I cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much. Take care. If you like what you just heard, please show your support for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can contribute to This Is Hell, including all of our merchandise and a direct link to our weekly Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to now by going to patreon.com slash thisishell, or you can just make a direct donation by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. 
This is Hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast at the same place shortly after. Tomorrow's, however, will be pre-recorded because I will not be here. On this week's Patreon podcast, everyone is rushing to go to the shores of normalcy and bathe in its maskless and non-socially distanced waters of freedom from disease and death. Everybody that is but me, apparently, as for whatever reason, a pandemic and millions of people dead has not put me in the celebratory mood I thought it would. I've heard a lot of people talk about the social anxiety of getting back together with family and friends due to the persistence of the pandemic, but what about the social anxiety of what the hell you are going to talk about and act? How are you going to act now that there are millions dead? I mean, it doesn't sound like the kind of getting together where people should be popping champagne. Meanwhile, we'll be playing an interview we did 10 years ago this weekend when we spoke with Deepak Tripathi, a former BBC journalist who set up their Kabul office in the early 1990s and was the resident correspondent there. Deepak was on to talk about his book, Breeding Ground, Afghanistan and the Origins of Islamic Islamist terrorism. In that book, Deepak describes how Afghanistan descended into a civil war and how the Taliban emerged from that civil war, which is important context to have right now in understanding the current discussion of the U.S. military leaving Afghanistan. Deepak even explains how U.S. forces ended up making an alliance with radical Islamists that would later, the same ones would be behind the attacks of 9-11. Instead of war, Deepak argues for development, internal reconciliation, and societal reconstruction to counter Taliban influence in Afghanistan. So tomorrow on the Patreon podcast at This Is Hell, of This Is Hell, at patreon.com slash thisishell, beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time, posted shortly after at the same place, a consideration of whether it is time to party while the world is very much still burning, and a conversation on how the U.S. screwed up Afghanistan. But you can only hear all that by subscribing to our Patreon podcast. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff publicly shames himself. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind our listeners what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding. This week's dud question from hell is <laughs> Will corporate partners and natural sponsorship fit for This Is Hell's passionate, engaged audience? Andrew S. says, This is Hellman's <laughs> trademark. Uh, Neil C. says, Getoutofdebt.com. Joel Gluck posted a link to Brewski Beer. Chris B says Chevron or Nestle. Tough choice. <laughs> I didn't get the Brewski Beer thing, did you? Uh, let me click on it. <laughs> that's exactly. That's what happened to me, and that's when I stopped understanding what the hell was going on there. Anyway, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of the moment of truth when we will be announcing this week's winner. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week, scratch that, all the questions I asked this week were written while I was high. This is hell, and I know you have. Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do, Hefe. One more time. Shame on me. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. It's quite a paradox. We've all either come into conflict with those with whom we have an inexplicable bond over things we care about deeply, 
or avoided conflict with these others over them, but the conflict is always there, always lurking amid potential interactions, and we've each had to navigate these minefields in our own way. This is the shameful story of one of my navigations. Early one day, I opened my email to find some very strange messages. Three friends had written to console me. Apparently, a mutual friend of ours had sent an email to me, cc'd to the three of them, that lambasted me so harshly they were concerned for my welfare. One was apologetic, as the author of the email was her husband. Another, the mother-in-law of this fellow, averred that she'd always liked me, as if I were already swinging from a structural beam or had taken a header off the roof of a skyscraper or a picturesque cliff. The third person copied in, just a good friend who had himself witnessed the writers and my brewing antagonism over the years, I think, urged me not to take anything in the offending email to heart. I hadn't read the email in question, because I had long ago had my email handling software funnel all correspondence from this fellow into a folder labeled with his name, a colon, and the value-free word, crap. After reading these other sympathetic emails, I went and found the offending missive in that folder, and rather than read it, shoveled it into the email furnace. For that reason, I got all the delight of getting my wounds salved without receiving any of the wounds. It was all salve. Had I read the email, I'm sure I would have needed the soothing voices of the concerned folk. I even got a few more apologetic texts from the wife, so I told her, and I paraphrase, I, I didn't read it. I have too much respect for him to want to think of him saying nasty things about me. And the fact is, it's true. I think he's an amazing person. He's a unique combination of traditional and unorthodox, has a rigorous yoga practice, and goes above and beyond the dharma he considers it his duty to follow. He lived in Seattle for a while, where he worked for Microsoft, started a pop-up restaurant, and did a few other things to accumulate enough money to build his parents a house in Kerala, pitch in with his wife to pay for the raising and schooling of their two daughters, and help with the raising of yet someone else's daughter in India. He's an autodidactic scholar of Western philosophy and literature, a lifelong devotee of the Vedas, and a pupil at the feet of an ecumenical guru in the far north, toward the Himalayas. Some time after this incident, back in October of what I guess we're still calling 2020, but should really just call lost COVID year, his wife informed me of the death of her father-in-law and told me that her husband, whom I'll refer to henceforth as Voltaire, one of his favorite writers, would surely appreciate a timely message. I wrote to him, Sincere condolences on the death of your father. I often pause for my daily mental and emotional nonsense to recall with gratitude the hospitality you and your parents extended to me during my visit. With respect, I wish that you might be visited with blessed memories or as my people say, with their idiosyncratic grammar, may his memory be for a blessing. And that was all true. I don't say things about people's departed friends or relatives that I don't feel. He and his parents were very good to me when I visited them in Palakkad, Kerala, and I've often thought of that time with deep gratitude. I didn't think about it any further. I didn't know if he'd appreciated the email or not. But this week, 
During Memorial Day weekend, Voltaire came into my mind when I was reading a paper by the author of The Heathen in His Blindness, a fascinating book which Voltaire had introduced me to. The book was partially inspired by the work of Edward Said, who most definitely paved the way for academic critiques of Western intellectual hegemony, of which critiques this book might be the most influential, since Said's own Orientalism. In addition, Voltaire's wife, my friend, posted a fetching video he'd made of some of the goings-on near the Ganges, where he, his wife, and his mother are currently having the quarantine while a surge of COVID-19 ravages India. Well, shame on me. I got curious, for some reason, to know exactly when Voltaire had sent that nasty message I hadn't read. So I went back looking for the sympathetic missives from his wife, her mother, and our mutual friend. I couldn't find them for the life of me. Perhaps I deleted all traces of the event. But while I was searching for those, I stumbled onto an email I'd missed last October. It was from Voltaire. It was in response to my condolence email. He had responded after all. He had appreciated it and ended with the statement, I want you to also know that of all the many condolences that I have got, yours is the first mail I responded to. And I never lie. Yes, shame on me, because I wrote back to him, I appreciated this very much. I haven't responded till now because of my own interpretations of Jewish ideas of tzedakah, which have led me to contain interpersonal streams of gratitude going in and coming out within a discreet mental-emotional compartment. That of course, was a lie. I hadn't responded because I hadn't known the message existed. See, unlike Voltaire, I frequently lie. I never lie during the moment of truth, though. I just make shit up. It wasn't entirely a lie, the thing about my midrash on Sadaka. It's it's not a midrash. It's, it's an opinion by me on an opinion of Maimonides on charitable giving. I mean, Stretching the definition, it might be considered a midrash with a small m, given that I am a Jew and a freewheeling freelance type like Bob Dylan, only not as crazy or talented. I was referring to Maimonides' eight rungs on the ladder of tzedakah. Have you heard of this? The lowest kind of charity is to give grudgingly. I mean, it's giving, but you don't have to be a jerk about it. The highest level of tzedakah is to help set someone up to be self-sustaining, as Voltaire and his wife did with the girl in India. You know, teach the man to fish and provide maybe a rod and reel, maybe a tackle box, a six-pack in a cooler, and a couple of recipes. I was referring to the second highest level, though, where the giver doesn't know to whom they're giving and the receiver doesn't know where the gift came from. It's anonymous all around. It's like double-blind charity. The second best. Interestingly, Maimonides never said what level it is when it's double-blind and the receiver is set up to be self-sufficient. Would that be somewhere in between the highest and the second highest? Of course not. Anonymity makes the best even better. And come on, it's hard to pull off anonymity when you're providing someone with what they need to lift themselves out of economic precariousness. Maimonides didn't think of that, and he was basically the top rabbinic thinker of the 12th century. Maybe he thought it would never happen. He never read Great Expectations. 
He figured it would be impossible for someone to conceal their identity while also contriving to give someone a good life start, like a Kickstart. But now we have Kickstarter and all the other giving sites, most, if not all of which, offer anonymity. Was Maimonides unimaginative? Certainly less imaginative than Dickens. Or did he just figure that anonymously or otherwise, setting someone on the road to independence topped them all? Yeah, it was probably that. He's wrong, though. Anyway, the ostensible idea behind this lie is that I didn't feel my thanking him for his thanking me would be seemly. I just accept thanks. Just accept thanks. It's convoluted logic, especially if explained by a ridiculous man, and obviously what really happened was I'd been averse to receiving any communication from him at all, and now I was mildly shamed, if not actually ashamed. Lest you think I've learned my lesson to give at least a cursory glance to any email from someone I respect conditionally, I have not. Embedded in Voltaire's thank you email was the following statement. I love the Jewish people, but I reject the Western liberal identification of problems, and I think its solutions, whether in relation to race or gender, are going to be worse than what it is. I don't... I do not want to unpack that. I don't want to address it. I don't want to discuss it. I don't know what he means by liberal, and I don't care. I have no desire to trap myself again in the endless cycle of semantics, misunderstandings, insults, and convoluted explanations involving thousands of years of what may or may not be knowledge. Voltaire adds, after asserting his philosemitism, a form of Orientalism, I might note, but don't get me started, don't get me started, and his rejection of Western liberal solutions, our disagreements are about that. As if that had been the whole of our epic struggle during the past decades. As a contrarian, he sometimes moves in radical Hindu nationalist circles. So our disagreements bleed out all over the map. They hemorrhage all over the entire collection of disagreement atlases. But of course, it's always more complex than that. If there ever was a case of the agony of influence, his influence on me is one. And shame on me for not diving into that nutritious cesspool of contradictions with my mouth wide open. I cannot but accept that shame. Shame, shame on me. This has been the moment of truth. Good eye, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffy, I'm on my way to go camping, so... Uh, oh, rocking! All right, well, have a great time. I'm I have to, to say... Go ahead. Yeah. Where, where are you going? Oh, uh, so when you enter Michigan going across the Indiana border in the southwestern corner of Michigan, yeah. uh, there's these huge billboards for a sex shop. That's the exit <laughs> where I'm going. I'm not going oh. into sex shop, but it is the biggest sex toy shop in southwestern Michigan. And man, is that billboard huge. So Are you going to uh, bite into a legend? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> There's a billboard for, uh, uh, I don't remember what the name of the pies are, but uh, it's, it, it says bite into a legend, um, which would go well with your billboard, <laughs> I think. Um Chuck, I, I just want to give a plug yes. for my answer, Kentucky Jelly. <laughs> uh, I know, I know, I can't uh, win, but I'm just saying, Alex keeps complaining it was a dud. I think there were some spectacular answers. All right, maybe not. 
<laughs> All right, Jeffy. Forget it. Have a great trip. Until next time. Uh, what? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question, Mel, and give us the rest of the answers if there are any more. This week's question from hell is, what corporate partner is a natural sponsorship fit for This Is Hell's passionate, engaged audience? <laughs> Jeffrey D. says, any corporation would pry their way in by force, so Reckitt uh, Bankasser Group, PLC, would employ its subsidiary company, KY Jelly, to <laughs> lubricate a hostile coupling. So dumb. Max I. says, DeWalt. Bradley R. says, I would go with one of those trendy mattress companies to help the listeners sleep at night after every episode. Martin F. says, Smuckers, because the world, the people causing all the problems in this world uh, today are a bunch of mother smuckers. Oh, boy. Yeah, I know. Warren L. says, Preparation H. Wally R. says, I'm thinking you could cut a deal with that meal delivery outfit, then change the name of the show to This is HelloFresh. Ronaldo M. says, International, 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 International International Beer. Benjamin C. says, Waylon Yutani. Nick A. says, The unified listenership of This is Hell. Krimsky K. Dr. Dre. Dan K. says, Those Zen booths at Amazon warehouses, which, have you seen videos of this? Oh my <laughs> God. So they give you a closet. It's basically, it's a little bit bigger than a phone booth, if you remember what a phone booth looks like. Yeah, that's just awful. Adam A. says, I'm not going to say suicide booths are your mom. That is all. Braden S. says, National Beer. And finally, uh, Adam B. via email says, The Pinkerton, uh, sorry, The Pinkertons. <laughs> and more locally, the Obama Foundation. Y'all excited for that library? <laughs> no. Is there a presidential library I'm supposed to be excited about? Is that all of them? Yeah. So let's see. The answers I liked most were I did like Andrew saying, This is Hellman's. That's just stupid and hilarious. Bradley's answer I would go with one of those trendy mattress companies to help the listeners sleep at night after every episode. Adam's response I'm not going to say suicide booths or your mom. That is all. And Dan saying, Those Zen booths at Amazon warehouses. That. I don't know. Alex, it's either Zen Booths or This Is Hellman's. Which one you like? Yeah, more? I like Zen Booths. Yeah. So, Dan, you are the winner of this week's question from Hell. You can pick from whatever merchandise you want at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we will send you that piece of merchandise in the mail post haste. All you have to do is just message us via Facebook and tell us your mailing address and what piece of merchandise you want. My answer to this week's question from Hell What corporate partner is a natural sponsorship fit for This Is Hell's passionate engaged audience Adrenochrome if it's good enough for Democratic Party elites it's good enough for our audience also did you know Alex that QAnon got the Adrenochrome idea from the movie Monsters Inc which they view as a documentary and not animation for children did you have any idea there was a connection there I mean I knew Hollywood was sick (laughs) Now I want to watch Monster Sync again. Does Thanks. That happened in that movie? I don't know. I don't know. I remember a baby being involved in scary monsters. That's all I remember. For some reason, Monster Sync didn't really touch my soul as much as I thought it was going to. Thanks, everyone, for sending in your answers to this week's question. Alex, do we have anyone scheduled yet for next week's shows? Yeah, so uh, Monday, Mara Vistendahl. Yes. Uh, who put an H and a V together in a damn name? Dutch. Mara is going to be on to talk about her big series, Oracles of Author- Oracle of Authoritarians. And uh, the most recent piece, and this is for The Intercept, the most recent piece is, Oracle boasted that its software was used against U.S. protesters. 
Then it took the tech to China. And it had, uh, this is what Oracle was all tried out here in Chicago with the clear system that the police surveillance used and also in the 2012 NATO protests. That was the first launching of this uh, process. So it has a very local angle to the story as well. Uh, then also Tuesday working on it and Wednesday Rob Wallace is going around to tell us if we can have a damn listener appreciation <laughs> party this summer or not. I'm betting Among he's going to say that's no. Probably, that's probably uh, more questions than that but I think uh, <laughs> we, is that going to be the question from hell? It's got to be right? Yeah. Uh, Thursday still working on it and Jeffy. Thanks to first of all Every We start every week's uh, live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. And this week's hangover cure is pesto eggs, which are freaking delicious. Have you ever had that before, Alex? No. It was awesome. It is awesome. You just put pesto in a pan, you heat it up, and then you throw on eggs. It's absolutely delicious. Wait, you cook the pan, you cook the pesto in a hot pan before you cook the eggs? Yeah, because you got to get the oil going a little bit. Hmm. It's really, really good. Thanks to yesterday's guest, literary theorist Hans Ulrich Gumbrecht, author of Crowds, The Stadium as a Ritual of Intensity. Thanks to today's guest, Rocio Zambrana, author of Colonial Debts, The Case of Puerto Rico. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing and Richard uh, Norwood for running the board and everything else they both do for the show. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth and Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Special thanks to Theron Humiston because just because talk to you tomorrow on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell when i will be wondering if it's really time to celebrate yet and we'll be sharing our interview from 10 years ago with deepak tripathi author of breeding ground afghanistan and the origins of islamist terrorism i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host chuck mertz producing today's show is alex jerry there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we have introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Do you feed Mel? Yep. <laughs>